In the shadow of Rockford Tower, behind enemy lines, in the belly of the Delaware Way Beast. This is your Highlands Bunker podcast. Uh, Rob here in the studio, and super producer Carl is beaming in from a secure remote location. Uh, to commemorate the opening of the new baseball season, we have a special guest uh, on our show today, John Springer. John is a baseball historian and the author of Once Upon a Team, The Epic Rise and Historic Fall of Baseball's Wilmington Quick Steps. Uh, hello, John. Thanks for taking the time. Well, Robert, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so before we, we dive into the story, I wanted to announce uh, a little prize giveaway uh, deal we're going to do. Uh, any active patron who refers a family member or friend or stranger, I guess, uh, onto the Patreon gets a hardcover signed copy of John's book. Uh, we've dropped two bonus episodes for patrons only recently, and I think that would be a good selling point uh, for new patrons. Uh, also, I guess some of you freeloaders could sign up on patreon.com slash the Highlands Bunker as well. I'll send you a book. Um, it's while supplies last. I think we have five left. So um, get on that, patreon.com slash the Highlands Bunker. Um, so, John, um, not to harp on it too much, but just to start out, I, I know you're unfortunately a Mets fan and a, and a Mets historian, um, but you do have a connection to Wilmington and Delaware. Um, you've done work here. Can you, can you give us some background on that and let us know sort of what your connection is and, and uh, how you got to um, find out about the quick steps? Sure. I'm a native New Yorker and uh, went to college, though, at University of Delaware. Um, and so spent four years in New, five years, let's put it, in, in Newark. And um, afterwards worked in uh, Elkton uh, at Cecil Wake for a couple of years and uh, moved eventually to Wilmington, uh, right in the, in the heart of the city when I was working for Out and About magazine. Um, that work went on for three or four years, I think. I eventually returned to New York in 2016. Oh, where'd you live in the city? Uh, I lived at 13th and Tattnall. Ah, Midtown Brandywine. It's a walk. It's about, uh, it's about a five minute walk from where Carl's uh, sitting right now. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, I, and I live in the city too. And, and I think that's why a lot of the, um, a lot of the references there were, were so resonant for, for all of us. So, that was uh, that was really cool, and um, and although I don't know if Out and About still publishes, I know Delaware Earth today still publishes, so there are still some periodicals around publishing, uh, you know, local stuff. Yeah, Out and About is still around. Um, oh, cool! And that actually, uh, an assignment in Out and About is where the book actually began. I actually wrote a uh, a magazine article for it originally. Oh, cool! Very cool. Yeah, we work. Um, we work with some journalists, some freelance journalists who do work for, uh, who have done work for Out and About, uh, Jordan Howe for Delaware Today, um, and we have a periodical that's mostly uh, sort of news and local politics called the Delaware Call, but we also um, do some long-form essays and, and like interest stories like that, so yeah, that's really, that's really cool. Um, so to dive into the Quick Step story, um, could you take some time at the beginning to sort of like set the scene and level set everybody? Uh, baseball in the 19th century was uh, sort of a very fluid, confusing situation. Um, it was sort of becoming, it was getting organized into a popular American entertainment uh, and, a, and a full-fledged business uh, sort of at the same time, but it was only around, you know, a, a few decades at this point. Um, and we don't need to get into specifics about, say, the Union Association specifically, but can you just sort of cover the landscape of pro, semi-pro, amateur, regional? You know, what was baseball like, um, you know, uh, in, in the Gilded Age? Yeah, in 1884, um, baseball, like, like the National League as we know it today, actually existed um, by then. Um, and there was another organization called the American Association, which had some teams that eventually went over over to um, a national baseball. And then and there were minor leagues around and the minor league, like the one that the women quick steps played in. Um, and another union association was another kind of a rival league. And you asked me not to get into that. <laughs> so I'll keep, yeah. I'll keep uh, away from that. But uh, baseball, I would say was in its adolescence at that point. It wasn't quite its infancy. Um, there were rules that were being codified. 1984 was a pretty watershed year in that, you know, overhand pitching became a thing. 
Um, uh, and um, so the rules and were, which were in rapid sort of evolution over the 15 or 20 years up to then really started to become a little bit more solidified with the uh, with the leagues being organized, the National League especially, uh, kind of uh, kind of a button down cartel uh, like it is today, um, uh, that kind of set the rules and and uh, the conditions under which the players worked, which weren't always great. But um, uh, so that's you know there, there was there was more evolution to come. By 1901, we had the American League, the National League, and that was the baseball that we've known. For the last 122 years, but um, um, so in '84, things were progressing towards there. Things were changing. Yeah, I think that's kind of when I why I wanted to leave the the specific union association to the side because I looked at this sort of situation as like a almost like a bubble, like we had a housing bubble or a tech bubble. Um, so we had sort of industrialists that were looking to sort of get in on this action, sort of. Um, Can you explain um, Henry Lucas, um, who he was, and how this sort of, like, um, third league came into existence? Um, And we can can kind of talk about why, too. Sure, sure. So uh, uh, Henry V. Lucas was a uh, St. Louis businessman, uh, who was, um, I guess he came from a wealthy family and and kind of spent his money like somebody who lived in a wealthy, came from a wealthy family did. Um, and he had wanted to establish a team in the National League and had been shut out by the National League owners. Like I said, they were a cartel. They didn't want Lucas in there. So Lucas's solution basically was to, was to create a team and then create um a league for his team to play in and he uh had financial resources that most uh other uh ball club owners did not but you know back in 1884 you couldn't go on the internet and look about <laughs> look at the guys you know who they look up the stats of who they've got or whatever so um lucas built a team that was ridiculously good for its league and recruited another a bunch of other teams that were also in most of them anyway in uh major you know existing major league cities and he called his league the union association and one of the ways that that lucas was able to get players was by um uh not enforcing the reserve clause in the contracts now, now if you know about baseball and the reserve clause that was what caused uh friction between owners and players for a hundred years. Uh, the reserve clause was essentially bound a player to his club in perpetuity. Um, and Lucas said, I'm not going to have that in my league. So that was one of the ways he was able to get talent from some of the existing major league teams to come over to his organization. And so for that one season, uh, 84, the, uh, a union association was, you know, more or less considered a third major league, along with the American Association and the National League. Yeah, so we have um, the Quick Steps as sort of an established amateur side, among many other clubs of this nature in Wilmington. Um, I found it interesting that there were, you know, were the different uh, sort of where the different grounds were. Uh, there was one in Wawasset Park that was called something different, had its own club. Uh, there was one downtown, I think, that the Quick Steps had played in before the new Front Street grounds were, were finished. And um, so, yeah, so in that sort of milieu in Wilmington, we have a figure, uh, John T. West, who uh, is just a, a, an incredibly interesting uh, sort of character. And when this new union association becomes a thing, uh, it sort of makes him even more excited to try to find... Uh, to try to find people to fund uh, a team that could be competitive and potentially compete uh, at that level. Um, can you talk? Can you talk a little bit about uh, about West, um, sort of who he was, um, how he operated, and, and sort of how he got these these guys together? Yeah, John West was a, um, uh, a cigar salesman essentially, who also um, owned a uh, a tavern. 
and um, was a fireman, um, a big heavy set guy. And he um, uh, he was very he was into sort of where the action was, where people were into sports and activities. John West was sort of part of it is kind of behind the scenes. He was a, you know, a timekeeper in boxing matches and that kind of stuff, too, I believe. So um, uh, he he backed the uh, creation of the 84 uh, quick steps in the Eastern League. And in a way, very similar to the way that Lucas built his team, the St. Louis Maroons, um, West uh, secured the best players from that level of play, the Eastern League, um, who, to, to come on and be members of the 84 Quick Steps. Yeah, you, you, uh, you talk about, you know, being a sort of a tobacco salesman by day, uh, but sort of a sort of a hustler by hustler by night. I, I part out. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think one of the, one of the great early chapters in the book is called the sweat box. Um, after, after the, the gambling den, I guess that, that he operated at fifth and orange. I, I do think it's interesting at fifth and orange. There is still one building on that intersection. Of course the, it is Wilmington. So the other three corners are um, surface parking lots now. Uh, but the, the, the Salvation Army has a big building attached to an old building, and I just I, now that I know this story, I always wonder whether that that's still the building or or, or some part of that building is still this uh, this place. Yeah, because you've and I don't know if there's more detail that you have researched that isn't in the book, but I, I just found the idea that it was sort of a, a working class uh, and 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 uh, and poor sort of uh, entertainment hall for all different sort of people black and white and, and, and all of that. And I just, I, I found that a very uh, interesting little piece of Wilmington history. Yeah. Yeah. You described that well. And, you know, a lot of the, the description that I get out of it though, however, came from uh, the newspapers that were sort of crusading against that kind of activity that he was promoting at the time, kind of, you know, uh, uh, they thought it was, you know, uh, not good to be involved in that. Uh, gambling and so forth, but that's who West was. And like I said, even even when his baseball team failed, eventually he got into and he continued to do things like uh, promote boxing matches and any kind of thing where there was where there was um, um, people and money, you know, betting on games and that kind of stuff. That's where he was around. Yeah, I found it interesting that one of the things that happened, and and this I think. Um... This echoes sort of the the way that um, the way that that um, sort of rich people and the municipality can come together and try to do to do business, whatever you want to say. Um, there is a very famous Wilmingtonian uh, industrialist family, uh, George W. Bush, George Washington Bush, um, who uh, was among other things, uh, somebody who built a, a railroad, a trolley track that would go from downtown all the way down front street to front and, and union where they built this new, uh, this new park, the front street grounds, which for people in, um, in Wilmington, it would be like where union park gardens is, um, going, uh, sort of out towards Ellesmere. Um, unfortunately because of this era, there's no, I don't even think there was a there was a there was a drawn picture of it or a postcard, um, but I mean I, it, it was there. Can can you talk about um, the building the 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 partnership to to sort of build that uh, piece of city infrastructure in support of this idea that this really good baseball team was going to play down the down the street? Right, right. Well, there was a lot going on there um, that, that you mentioned, but um, they had the they had the the front street grounds, and they wanted to be able to people to get to it. So um, they ran a, 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 a you know a trolley there, and I guess you know that was um, one of the ways that the investment should have paid for itself. Because you know, there was a, there's a question as to whether like how many people would actually going to these games, and attendance was not great at all times, but um, um, so yeah, that was that was uh, um, what 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 they did. And you're right, George George W. Bush, which I love that uh, yeah. <laughs> the character in there was behind that was behind that part of it. Yeah, um, it was interesting too, sort of going back to the 
you know, the common sort of thought about uh, baseball being part of West's sort of uh, portfolio of, of businesses, whatever you want to say, that and – I, and I don't remember whether this was his idea or it was the way that it was sort of sold – but the games were moved from sort of midday because it was just gamblers and sort of drunks and stuff that would go to, to sort of later in the afternoon to sort of draw sort of a different kind of crowd and, and sort of more people uh, because because, yeah, it, it, the, the attendance fluctuated so um, so wildly that, you know, it was, it was hard to even know, uh, you know, how many people were going to turn up. Right, right. No, that that. That, that was part of it. And, you know, there was questions during the course of the season, whether they were, you know, people didn't come the year before because they didn't win enough. And now the people didn't come because they were winning too often um, in 84. Um, there was a, uh, it's, it's, it's hard to say. I, I wanted to get more into this in the book and I, I kind of regret not doing it, but I really wanted to know who the fan was a little bit more and kind of get into the workers at Holland's, Holland's, what's it called? Uh, uh, Hollingsworth and, Hollands and uh, um, some of the, um, you know, the rail car factories and kind of figure out like, you know, who were, who were the fans who were coming to this, these ball games? Yeah. It's interesting because um, not only the fans, but the players themselves were almost, I don't want to say entirely, but the, the, the vast majority of them were, were Irish immigrants, uh, either, either born in Ireland or first generation, you know, their parents were from Ireland and they really were working class guys. Um, you you tell a funny story, and, and maybe there's more detail to it, but uh, I believe it was in 83, so it might have been the year before, but it could have been in the Eastern League in 84, I don't remember. Uh, the, the the players were always sort of switching around, and, and part of it was, you know, you could, you could, you could make deals or, or try to get out of the, the cartel, sort of National League, American Association cartel. Uh, there was a Baltimore team in Wilmington to play and uh, because the, I guess the gate receipts weren't sufficient or for whatever other financial reason, they couldn't make their train trip back to Baltimore. Uh, so two or three of the players actually got jobs here, like in, in the factory or in a mill or in a factory or something, or I think somebody in the cigar store and they said, well, you can play, we'll get you a regular job. And then you also can play for this team now that you can't find your way back to Baltimore. Um, there's, there's a, there's, there's a lot of stories like that. Like, uh, you know, players just happening to be somewhere and getting picked up because, Hey, did, you know, you played with this guy at the other place and now we need somebody because our, you know, uh, you know, our, our catcher broke his arm or something. Right. Right. Yeah. Those, uh, that story, uh, from the Baltimore players coming to Wilmington was a little, a couple of years before the quick steps uh, that I write about 84. Um, but, um, yeah, it happened. And and that kind of stuff happened all the time. Teams were underfunded. Um, they couldn't afford to get their, they couldn't, players couldn't get afford, couldn't be paid. And so the players would just take off and just join the team. If they, they, you know, there's another team there that will pay them. They'll just go there. Yeah, I I, um, I think now is a good time to just sort of talk about '84. So the the Union Association begins um, with Lucas and St. Louis, but with a with a uh, you know a, a docket of, of teams. Wilmington is not in that docket to start. They're in a uh, uh, you know a, a minor league sort of semi pro situation uh, in the Eastern League, and they're very good. Um, but uh, they're uh, they have a lot of interesting characters. Um, do you sort of want to talk about um, sort of how how the investment and this team sort of rose very quickly to, to sort of, as you said, I think you put it you put it well. They they were just always winning. It was almost um, I, you know they 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 lost very few games the first three months of the season. Well, if you look at the if you look at the eighty the the way that the the leagues were going that you know that Wilmington I believe played in eighty three in the Eastern League and was terrible, um, ran out of money, disbanded, whatever. They were uh, rescued rescued at the last minute by John T West's investment, and West was enthusiastic about building a good ball club, and so he just jumped on it as soon as the season was over, and it's just like you know with Steve Cohen and the Mets for for example, uh, going out and buying the best players available. That's basically what West was able to do. He would go through the, the um, he got the best manager out there, Joe Simmons. He got, and Simmons 
because Simmons was an experienced uh, baseball man and knew a lot of these ball players. Simmons was able to handpick the ball players that he wanted or you know wanted to be on his team. So from Harrisburg came Oyster Burns, who was a fiery player, but the best player on the team uh, every day. Um, uh, Dennis, not Dennis Casey, Dan Casey, Dennis Casey, and Dan Casey brothers um, were able to get get those guys there. Uh, Tom Lynch. Um, uh, Tony Cusick. So uh, uh, Charlie Bastian was a terrific fielder. Um, he basically, you know, bogarted the, the you know, eight or nine best ball players available. And before the other teams, you know, set their rosters and the, the players were known because they played in the same league the year before. These guys probably weren't good enough generally to be major league ball players. Um, or too young to be in the case of, uh, of Burns and and uh, Dennis Casey. But, um, you know, they, they acquired the best players of, that were available and they went against teams that weren't as good and they just steamrolled them. Um, they, they, they it, well, it was within a month, they, they basically the, the race was over. Yeah, they had also... Uh... Probably the best pitcher in the league too had a, had another cool nickname the only the only Nolan. Um, I was disappointed to learn uh, that Oyster Burns was basically given the name Oyster uh, sort of post career. I guess to differentiate him. Do we do we know that? I was disappointed that 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 was the case, and I since found out that that actually wasn't true. That very late in his career, he was referred to as Oyster Burns. But <laughs> nice. <laughs> That's beautiful because yeah. that's a that's our guy. Book, yeah, was was when you're writing a book about about minor league ball players, um, and a history, you know, the, everything you know about them, they're it's written when they're actually major league ball players or, or later in their careers, and they're not talking about what they were when they were 19 and 20 and 21 years old, which most of these guys were. Um, but uh, yeah, Oyster Burns was known as Oyster Burns. There was another Tommy Burns also in baseball at that time. And that's probably why uh, the oyster moniker stuck to him. But I don't think he called him oyster in in, in eighty four. They did yeah. call Nolan the Nolan in eighty four, and he called himself that, which is I think says a lot says a lot about him. He's a he's a uh, sort of a a character uh, unto himself. Um, I find the Burns as a player very interesting because he was only nineteen, uh, and he was also um, the captain of the team. And you you actually explain it in a, in a very good way. And Simmons himself was a cricketer and played played cricket in I guess even before the Civil War in New York. Uh, I played cricket. I've played cricket myself. And and yeah, it's a little bit different where the what we would consider the manager, the field manager, is really more of an administrative sort of set of you know set the team up. But all the decisions while the game is going on, uh, you know who's going to switch out of position. Uh, you know who's going to pinch hit, who's going to do all that. The the on field captain, a player would make that decision. They still do in cricket, actually, but that's how baseball was. So the captain of the team was really the the, the field manager, uh, which I think is pretty neat, especially for a nineteen year old kid who nobody seemed to really like that much. But he was a hell of a player. It sounds like. Yeah, yeah. Burns had a bad temper, uh, a, a foul mouth, um, and. Um... You know, he didn't necessarily get along very well with with opponents or uh, or, or necessarily his teammates. Um, but um, I think it was wise that, in retrospect, that that Simmons was able to sort of give him the the reign as as captain because it kind of kept him in line a little bit. And in a similar way, Simmons was able to keep uh, um, Nolan in line. Now, Nolan is another story. He was a a, a quote unquote veteran of the major leagues and had a lot of uh, problems of his own, mostly drinking related, but uh, he was able to keep him in line as well by kind of catering to the need. So diva like ball players existed back in the 80, 1880s is it's really um, the lesson for there. Yeah. It's interesting to think about. Um, uh, I, I was in the Wilmington courthouse uh, about two weeks ago, just doing a journalism thing, covering something that was there. And in the hallway, they just did a big remodel there. There's a bunch of old 
photos, Wilmington photos, uh, and there is a picture of Clayton House uh, festooned with bunting. There was some sort of like they were celebrating electric uh, wiremen with the electric light or something, but it was really cool because it was around. It was a. It was afterwards. It was probably fifteen years. Maybe it was around the turn of the century. But it was cool to see the way that the Queen looked um, when all of these ball players were 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 staying there, and that was sort of like the the spot, um, that spot, which is only which is only two blocks uh, right up Fifth Street uh, from where the sweat box was, which I found very interesting too. You could walk there. You could probably walk there in ninety seconds, no problem. Yeah, yeah, and it was not. It was only a few blocks. Box from from the sporting goods store that John West ran, also uh, down at I guess that was South Third. Some some I forget Market Street. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, I found that interesting too. Where the uh, there was a huge tie-in with the sporting goods store because they had you know they had the gear. They also had you know all of the magazines and newspapers that you would need to sort of follow what was going on. That's where the schedule was. You know, all of that stuff sort of revolved around that little spot where, where, you know, where all the information was. I found that very interesting too. Right. Right. You buy your tickets there. You could buy your, buy your, uh, get your results there. Yep. Um, can you talk what we've talked about the reserve clause a little bit and, and how, um, you know, not, not following that was sort of one of the ways that you could entice players away to uh, the union association. But of course, um, there was also uh, a day amendment and there was also sort of blacklisting if you didn't sort of follow through on your obligations to the sort of the cartel, the the older leagues. Um, Can you talk about that a little bit? And number one, sort of how they tried to uh, control it. Uh, but also how people sort of got around it or and what the ramifications were sort of if you didn't or you did get blacklisted. Yeah, well, some players got blacklisted and it stuck. Um, you know, uh, 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 Nolan was one of them. Um, but, um, yeah, the um, the reserve clause was was enforced by by clubs to obviously create an artificial drag on salaries and keep football players from moving to the net, you know, going and, you know, going to their best place to get paid. Um, but um, they had, there was all kinds of mechanisms in baseball to kind of stop players from, from moving around again, to, to keep the, the payrolls down. Um, but when, you know, in the summer of 84, while, while the union association was, was there, they began sort of engaging in this kind of open warfare and, if you if a ball player could be convinced that they could make more money by jumping over to the union association, maybe they would do it because you know the union association was saying, well, we're coming back next year. We'll be stronger, uh, especially with you. You're going to be, you know, it wasn't necessarily uh, a fait accompli that the national league was going to exist today. Um, you know, or the next year, much less, you know, uh, 125 years later. So, yeah, and it was so fluid as well because the financial situation of each club uh was very tenuous and 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 like you know you had clubs that would fail or or would or in the case of some would, would they would let fail because say Lucas couldn't support um uh, you know couldn't couldn't support a failing team in a, in, a, in a city for for whatever reason and so not only is there this interplay between the leagues but there are players uh, who just have nowhere to go, um, and so and 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 so they're always sort of moving around. And you find out that oh, this team is just disbanded. We can we can try to get those four players that we knew of, and and there's sort of a a, a feeding frenzy almost. Um, there's so many there's so many stories like that. They're almost like hard to follow. It's like how who's playing where and why? How what happened? Yeah. So that's so we had to put a table in the back of the book. Yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. Gives you gives you standings and what happened to the teams because and so many of them uh, didn't make it. Yeah, and that's how uh, the the quick steps were able to uh, to to play for a short period of time in the in the Union Association Major League. Uh, can you sort of give us a sort of the the brief history of that how how that came about and 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 again even even that uh, was sort of funny because there were. Again, two or three teams that were sort of financially maybe not viable, 
Uh, how long were they going to last? It had a lot to do with travel because obviously getting on a train and going to Altoona or Columbus or Trenton, you know, it was a little more of a of a thing to do. And so the machinations of teams disbanding and 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 then everybody sort of jockeying for the better the best position was was very interesting. And in the in the in the Quick Steps case, it was also very interesting. Yeah. So the the long story short, I guess, or maybe I'll make it long story, but uh, you, you can make it as long steps, as you want. Yeah. Quick steps were uh, dominating their league and, and but were losing money. So they were not going to make it to the finish line um, without uh, another, you know, an infusion of cash from the local investors, which it probably wasn't happening. Um, at the same time, the union association by muscling in on, on these, established major league cities like Philadelphia being a third team in Philadelphia, a uh, third team in Boston, a third team in Baltimore. Um, the um, uh, In Philadelphia, the, the Philadelphia keystones of the union association kind of uh, disbanded. And so for the, for the union association to complete their season, they needed a team to replace the Philadelphia team. And so they made entreaties to Wilmington to have Wilmington join their league. And it really kind of solved two problems at once. Wilmington wasn't going to make it in the Eastern league. The the draw for the, for the games weren't good enough. And there wasn't really much up to play on the union association. They would bring um, some good teams, including the St. Louis team to Wilmington uh, if they were able to do it. So they basically, you know, um, with a little bit of trepidation, the Quick Steps decided that they would move into the Union Association, and by doing so, um, uh, the the uh, reserve clause issues of their players got you know activated, and uh, other teams could come pounce on the players, and that's how Burns wound up with the Baltimore Orioles, and uh, as well as Dennis Casey, it lost a couple of players that that way. Yeah, it was uh, again. That's sort of like this sort of bubble mentality. They they that they're able to get sort of promoted, uh, but that that automatically, you know, they they, lo- they lose Burns to Baltimore. Uh, Nolan and his battery mate, uh, I guess, were looked like they were going to play for the Phillies. Um, so they're they're gone. And then the other the other thing that sort of sunk them to me is they immediately go on. Again, because of travel being a little more arduous than it would be today, they go on a a few week road trip and just get just get the the stuffing kicked out of them everywhere they go. <laughs> yeah, well, they 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 kind of they won their first game uh, as union as a big league team, and that was only one of two, and uh, they lost sixteen. But um, they um, yeah they they got into to uh, Baltimore. Um, Burnt without Burns, um, Dan Casey left, and Dennis Casey left after him. They were brothers. One was an outfielder, the other was a pitcher. Uh, they both left, uh, or Dan left for for Baltimore. Did Dennis Dennis left went home? <laughs> I guess after he he got uh, pounded as a pitcher in a game, um, and they were down playing in Washington. Uh, and they went from Washington to Boston. That was an enormous train trip back in 1884. Um, and they had trouble getting to Boston on time. Um, as a matter of fact, they they were charged a forfeit loss in one game because they couldn't get make it to Boston on time because their train was running late. While they were down in Washington and short of players, they picked up a couple of ball players who were local and had them join. And some of them took off with their money, their advanced money, and didn't... Uh, didn't stay with the club, just kind of went there for the payday and went and jumped out. Yeah. I believe even there's, there was, and at the time, I don't know whether this is clear because, you know, you had to sort of go off of like away box scores, but Simmons himself, I think played a game at third base. Uh, Yeah. So he had to, he had to uh, deputize himself by that time. I guess he was an older fella too. He must've been in his yeah. 40s, I can't remember yeah. his age off the top of my head, but um, that's in one of my interesting discoveries that's in my book. If um, you look up the major league record of uh, 
of Joe Simmons. Um, he's in your baseball encyclopedia or your baseballreference.com. He's not listed as a major league player in 1884, but he was. That's one of the <laughs> one of my contributions to uh society if you're a baseball geek and you visit those sites yeah very uh, nice you can see that so um they do uh play a home series uh but i in my notes here uh here's what it says and, and and so you'll you'll know i said the one home series is a literal horror show uh there's there's two uh very sort of freak accidents one's uh baseball related the other one is very likely drinking related. Uh, can you can you sort of tell those stories and what it was and how they were reported at the time, especially the one that's baseball related, is is a pretty fascinating one. And I'm sure that there was a little there was there was probably quite a bit, at least in the newspapers, to go on to to sort of piece that together. Right, right, yeah, that's the kind of thing that they could write about. You know, the game stories weren't always all that all that clear in the in the old newspapers because of the printing press took so long to do and to get a game story after a game, the next day's paper was difficult. But um, in this uh, instance, um, Wilmington was at home. They were playing uh, Cincinnati, uh, Cincinnati. What are they called? I forget the, the out, name of it. Outlaw Reds. The Outlaw, Outlaw Reds. Reds. I knew they had a cool name. Yeah. 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 Uh, Jim Glasscock was batting. Um, I forget who was pitching, um, but um, oh, Jack, Jack Glasscock. He, you got to understand the the umpire stood at the times much further back from the catcher than he did in today's game, um, because of, nobody was really wearing all that great gloves and protective equipment. So, um, anyway, the uh, Jack Glasscock swings at a pitch, fouls it straight back, hits the umpire in the mouth, and he is knocked to his knocked to knocked out onto his back on the uh, on the field and they go to check him out and he's not breathing he's turning purple is um um something is going on with his his you know i forget it, his tongue or his throat or something is is stopped and a doctor who is in the boat who's in the stands to watch the game literally jumps out onto the field and saves the guy's life um uh, right there on the field it was nearly the first on-field fatality in um in baseball history and you know they said that uh people in the stands were fainted because the, the bloody scene was so disgusting uh seeing what was happening um yeah i mean if if it's true if it's true it must have been pretty grotesque because the doctor had they figured out the doctor quickly figured out that his jaw was dislocated and like pressing pressing on the back of his throat and was able to like right there reset his jaw and it kind of came and then he came to as he was able to start breathing again. Um, but so that, it, I mean, it just sounds like a, a pretty, uh, a pretty wild scene. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it was, it was a disturbing scene and, you know, people didn't come to the ballpark the next day. There was, uh, attendance went down. It was just another, just kind of another kind of a bad, uh, a bad scene. But, um, uh, fortunately the, the umpire, I think his name was Dutton, was was okay and recovering yeah the other the other odd uh, situation was uh <clears throat> during that series uh some players wandered back uh to the clayton house the what is now the queen theater and uh were just sort of wandering in at night and stepped in the elevator but the elevator wasn't there and and fell uh down the elevator shaft into the basement uh that i i, I like how it was reported, uh, you know, sort of like I I didn't see it, uh, but like you know when you're when you're coming into a hotel at, at, at midnight on a on a Wednesday and you're known for really throwing them back, I think we can we can kind of get to uh, to what really happened, uh, but that's just a wild story that the you know that that you know that he was out of commission then for, for for quite a bit, so it was like a bunch of freak accidents, losing players, and the the stint, uh, unfortunately for the quick steps, did not. Uh, was qu very quick. They quickly stepped right back uh, out and 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 were defunct. Um, you you can, can you sort of describe the 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 last days of the the major league uh, side? Uh, well, it, there really wasn't much to it. You know, they the uh, Kansas City Cowboys were in town. Um, the teams who had were given what was called a guarantee. They um, a minimum of the gate receipts would be given to them. I think it was seventy five dollars then. 
the quick steps didn't have that. And so uh, the game couldn't be played because Kansas City wouldn't, wouldn't, uh, wouldn't play. And the team disbanded kind of then and there on the field. And a couple of ball players left, again, left with as members of the Kansas City Cowboys. Uh, they think about Kansas City. That was ridiculous long trip <laughs> to come all the way out to Wilmington. Um, but uh, yeah, they they left after that, and it was just kind of a a, a kind of a, a inglorious ending to a to a what was really a good season for the team, and and it was kind of a special team. Yeah, I, 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 it was the, the way you describe it in the book. I kind of felt the same way. It was sort of anticlimactic. You know, you, you, everybody gets there, and you know, because of everything that was going on, attendance had really fallen off to, to almost nothing. I think the game before, after the umpire injury, maybe had two hundred fans from a from a max of what was it, about fifteen hundred? I guess they were getting when they were when they were good. Um, and and yeah, everybody just gets there and just decides like, I, I, I guess that's it. And that <laughs> that was it. Um, that, yeah, that's uh, it. That was, yeah, we that we can't pay you anymore. We, you know, you gotta. We we're done. Yeah, you did mention too, and, and maybe we can we can sort of uh, tie a tie a bow on it. Um, you know, some players were blacklisted. Some weren't. Um, some were. Um, you know, some were able to move uh, and and make you know considerably more money. I think you know when they were playing in the Eastern League, uh, the best players like Burns and, and, and Nolan were making three or $350 a month. Uh, and, and, and they were able to go, the ones that could make it uh, were able to make, were, were able to make considerably more, probably double or triple what they were making, you know, right out of the blocks if they could, if they could perform. Um, can you talk a little bit about the economic part of it and sort of where some of these players ended up? Because, for example, Oyster Burns himself had a, had a pretty, pretty significant uh major league career i was telling people that you know in the dead ball era you know there weren't so many home runs but he he did win a bad a, a home run title with three other guys i think in like i want to say 1890 uh with, with brooklyn he led the led the national league in home runs in rbi yeah, with like th- with thirteen home runs, so I think three other people had thirteen, and I always tell people the person who finished below those three guys had nine. <laughs> so, so you know, it was a little bit of a it was a little bit of a different game, but you know, some players went on to 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 great success. Um, you know, Nolan is an interesting character. Yeah, Nolan's yeah, an interesting character too, out of, but, out of all of them, and yeah. played for I don't know ten years, something like that. Yeah. And, and and Nolan's an interesting character too. I, he, I wonder. I mean, I, I you don't you you stated in the book. You know, he had a relationship with the guy who who was his catcher. Uh, but you know, in, in this day, he's he's pitching pretty much every day. Uh, might take might take one day off where somebody else or or a few people will pitch a game. Uh, but this is a time where you know you know very high quality pitchers are winning forty games in a. You know they're they're forty and twenty or something like that, um, and so yeah, he was able to get a tryout, I guess, with the Phillies for the same amount of money. But it almost felt like he had something in him where he's he's just an interesting character because he was the guy who would call himself the only. You know, he was sort of like a he was like the fanciest player, I guess you would say, like if. I always think about because it's set in Wilmington. Obviously, I think about oh, you could run into one of these guys, you know, on the street or, or whatever. He seemed like kind of a I don't want to say a dandy because he was just a baseball player, but he was the guy who had sort of would have seemed had the highest opinion of himself. Uh, but I think it seemed to me like he knew he couldn't cut it. I mean, I don't know if that's the that's the impression well, you got. He, could, but he was he had a phenomenal year um, in um, when I say eighteen. 879 with Indianapolis. It's it's a like a historically great year um at that time. And um so he had it at one time. And I think he he had some injuries, probably, but he also drank his way off several teams. He caroused his way uh into bad, you know, uh, uh, bad situations again and again. Um and he had actually, before he pitched in Wilmington, 
he'd actually been exiled out of every club in the like the known universe of the East Coast. He was actually pitching in San Francisco um, for a couple of years um, before he came over. But uh, yeah, he he was a particular guy, um, and I think he had his mind on um, uh, you know what he wanted to do after after his game his time was done with baseball and i i think um with the with the quick steps he had a, a little bit of a of a career renaissance there he actually he actually had a very good year and you know it's interesting because the the, the this was a minor league team but they played major league teams when the major league teams were going between you know baltimore and philly they could stop in wilmington and get an extra payday to pay play the local you know minor league team and uh uh, Nolan pitched those games and was actually, you know, pretty good at that and and beat a couple of uh, good teams that year. So, yeah, that's another interesting little wrinkle is because of the travel again. Some of there, there's a lot of interleague sort of uh, just exhibitions and uh, part of it. Yeah, again, because you had to put the tables in the back too to sort of follow. Part of it was you know how many games did you have to play to make it. Uh, to for it to count, basically, you know, you you know, teams are dropping out. You're playing exhibitions, but what really counts? And and I I always thought it was it was interesting too, uh, because of that, a lot of teams were able to sort of label themselves the best going, you know, the best amateur team in New Jersey or something, uh, because you there was really no way, as you said, you know, there was no you couldn't look it up really. It was just sort of by whatever you knew and, and you know, if you played there or, or if, if you got if you saw the newspaper. So there was a lot of, uh, we'll call it uh, sort of interesting marketing, I guess, what it was. That was really, that was the description that really led me to this whole story, by the way. You were telling me before the show that you had, you had only heard of the Wilmington Quick Steps recently. My right. first uh, hearing of this team was when I was reading a book about another uh, 19th century ball player named John Montgomery Ward. Uh, the book was called uh, A Clever Baseballist, and it describes uh, Ward at one time encountering a team from Wilmington, Delaware, that was that was devoting them, you know, calling themselves the the world champions of or the world champ world champion amateur baseball team. Yeah, I love it. I, I mean, just if, if you're gonna if you're gonna go, go all the way. Call yourself the best. Yeah. Yeah. Well, John, I really appreciate you you coming on and talking. Uh, I, I I wish I could uh, wish your your Mets uh, the best, but I I simply can't. Uh, I remember I remember for your Phillies, so it's all right. I, I I was I was I was going to say the exact same thing. I was going to say I know the feelings mutual. Uh, uh, it, and as I always say, these these things go up and down. Uh, you know, the, the the Phillies will be bad again before I know it. I'm 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 sure of that much. It's good. It's it's a good period of time when the Mets and the Phillies are both good at the same time, which which has pretty much been this year and this year and last year, um, because it's it's happened so infrequently over the over the, the the lifetimes of the franchises. Yeah, as a younger guy, I can tell you that I I sat uh, in in Veteran Stadium, booing uh, Daryl Strawberry, booing Doc Gooden, and just watching the Phillies get absolutely massacred every game <laughs> so yeah there hasn't been it's always been sort of uh sort of been you know one team's very good and the other one's very bad so it it is it is interesting when teams around here uh that are that are close um you know go back and forth now because of travel uh not like the 19th century you can actually go uh very easily to you know another city especially along this corridor um and 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 go catch a game so you know the, the the rivalry continues anyway. Yeah, the rivalry does, and uh, baseball is still alive and well in Wilmington, which is good. Yeah, and as we said, I, I don't know how it'll how it'll get packed, but I, yeah, I, I would like to. I mean, first of all, people love that sort of old timers day sort of idea. So the idea of, as you said, wearing gray with a with a big gray flannel with a big purple belt and some purple trim, I think people would be into that. I'd like to see. I'd like to see them feel with their bare hands. Actually, that would be cool. <laughs> yeah, they had little gloves, little tiny gloves, little oven mitts back then. But uh, yeah, yeah. See, some of them, and I couldn't tell because there's some photos um, that come from a little later that are included that people will will dig if, if they get when they get the book. And one of them is, I think, 
you know, obviously it's it's uh, it's set up. You know, somebody's sliding into second, and somebody's sort of holding a ball there uh, because to take a to take the camera out there must have been a, a, a treat a trick. Um, but yeah, I couldn't tell what it was on his hand, but it wasn't much, if if anything. Uh, Charlie Bastion, I believe. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't much, and so. Yeah, as it's funny to think about what the games were like. I mean, you for for people who want who like a little uh, sort of description of of some of these more interesting sort of matchups or series, I highly recommend this because it's it's fun to sort of piece together what the game was like. Uh, like you said, the, the the catcher stood further back and the umpire stood further back. Everybody's fielding with you know basically just like a pad on their hand, and so you know. There's there's pass balls and wild pitches, you know, double digit ones, you know, usually, uh, you know, you know more errors. There there were great fielders, obviously, and you mentioned a few of them, and you mentioned a few of them in your book, but obviously a lot of a lot of errors, poor umpiring, uh, you know, drunks getting into arguments with players from the field. So it's just it's it's a it's, umpiring situation was a was very hazardous. Uh, you had to be desperate to be an umpire at that time. Yeah, it's interesting. You 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 give a little detail of the umpire who was who was injured so badly uh, in the in the the first home pro series, and when he finally came was conscious, he saw sort of everybody around him and thought he was being attacked. <laughs> it's like because that was the first thought he thought was like, "Those guys are going to kill me." Yep. Well, thanks a lot, uh, John. I I hope to be in touch because I hope to be telling these uh, these Blue Rocks players they have to have a big. Quick steps night, and you can come and do do your whole thing down here. Well, let them know. Let them know. I'll, I'll, I'll be rooting for them. And um, yeah, let me know. I'll, I'll, I'll join the join the course. Cool. Well, thanks everyone. Uh, as I said, we have some books to give away, so hit us up on Patreon. Uh, you know what to do, and you also know that uh, left is best. <laughs>